I'm going to turn your attention to the back middle portion of your worship guide, or if you have a Bible, you can turn to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 20. We're taking another big chunk of scripture uh, this morning as we've been working through um, this small Old Testament prophetic book called Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. You can say whichever you want. This book, it deals with um, deep questions and deep doubts about God and his ways. It it is somewhat comforting uh, that the questions you might have about the faith, about the way that God works in the world, they are not new to this generation. You're not the first people to wonder these questions. God's people have always wondered these things. They've always wrestled with deep questions. As we read through Habakkuk, we see that he wonders this question that almost every thoughtful Christian thinks. If God is perfectly good and God is perfectly powerful, which he is, Why is there so much evil in this world? Why doesn't God act? Why doesn't he punish and stop evil right now? My my kids were asking me this question this week. Habakkuk asks these questions. He doesn't ask them uh, with antagonism. He doesn't ask uh, God these questions in faithless anger, accusing God. But he approaches God with what we termed last week, faithful doubt. He brings his doubts and his questions to God in faith. God, you're good. I believe you're trustworthy and you're powerful, and so what gives? Where are you? Why are you so slow in acting? Why don't you do what's right? In chapter 1 of uh, Habakkuk, uh, he asks God why he's slow to judge, not the sin out in the world, but sin among God's people, among Judah. Judah is filled with sin and pride His people have wandered far from God for generations, and so the society was filled with violence and injustice. And Habakkuk's distressed by it. In Habakkuk's day, there was another evil force, not just the nation of Judah, but it was the Babylonian Empire. This was a a diabolical, destructive force that was growing in the east. It was malevolent and cruel. And so while in chapter 1, Habakkuk is complaining about Judah's sin, in, uh, at the end of chapter 1, he begins to um, complain that God is going to send Babylon to judge Judah's sin. Habakkuk wonders loudly in chapter 1, God, how can you do that? How can you let this evil nation of Babylon uh, act like this? How can you let an evil nation like theirs go unpunished? And now what we're going to do, we're going to turn our attention to chapter 2 of Habakkuk to hear God's response to this faithful doubt, starting in verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him 
who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, who pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a st silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray one more time for us. Father, Father, would you please make your word clear and plain to us now. We need your help not only to hear and to understand, but also to trust and to obey. Would you shape our faith and also our actions and our affections? Fill us with your spirit so this word, which is your very own word, can do a work on us now. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, that, that, was, a, that, was, a, that was a big portion of scripture. It might have seemed a little, a little complicated. I was trying to figure out how I could condense and make it a little bit more clear through the week. I was kind of wrestling with the text and trying to figure out, and, and this is kind of what I, what I came up with. It, it's this uh, steady theme, uh, this promise, really, that runs throughout the scriptures front to back, and this is what it is. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you want to put chapter 2 on a postage stamp, that's a good way to do it. This is how James chapter 4 uh, 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 puts it. Um, but that truth is described in countless places throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and, and obviously here in chapter 2 of Habakkuk. That principle, it's captured in stories and in proverbs and prayers and letters and countless examples. It's like in a symphony when, when you hear a particular theme being played over and over again in slightly different modulating ways. It, it does so so it can stick in your mind so you can understand it really clearly. God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Pride is, is what turns us away from God to worship uh, and serve ourselves or other things that are created. Sex, money, power over others, self-mastery, you know, whatever it is. And humility is the turn to God for help, for satisfaction, uh, repenting of our sin, trusting in him. This is the story that we see throughout the Bible. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes, opposes pride, 
uh, on, on several different le- levels when we read the Bible. He, he opposes it on a cosmic level. He opposes pride in unseen angels and demons. Uh, he opposes it on a personal level. Jesus says that those who exalt themselves, God will humble, and the humble he will exalt. But God also acts this way on a national level. Nations rise and fall, not arbitrarily, but according to this truth of God's governance, this inescapable, absolute, guaranteed reality, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, always. In Habakkuk, here in chapter 2, we see this truth in in chapter 4, and then it's given expression uh, in, in the rest of chapter 2. In verse 4, Habakkuk describes the pride of Babylon. Look at it with me. In verse 4, he says, His soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. And then in verse 5, he describes the, the, the nation of Babylon, kind of personifies it and pictures it as an arrogant man, never at rest, greedy, insatiable, violent. Babylon is, is a picture of pride. Uh, it's, it's a picture of an unwillingness to submit to God and to his law. Uh, being proud, Babylon elevated themselves above God, above other people. They, they used people as a means for personal gain. They will serve no one but themselves. And what does God do with the proud? Is he indifferent to it, to, to them? Is he just willing to let them let, let live and not, not bother about it? No. That's not the case. God opposes the proud. And what we see in in verses 6 through 20 of our text, we see God's promised opposition to pride given in in very graphic detail. Again, God's not indifferent to human pride or national pride. He will oppose it through his judgment. Uh, Verse 4, again, if you look at it, it describes pride, but it also describes the promise of grace to the humble. There certainly are proud, puffed up, arrogant people, but there are also what God describes as the righteous, those who are accepted by God. They don't live, live their lives according to pride, but by their faith in God. They look to God, they trust in God, and what does God do with the humble? He gives them his grace. Now we have to kind of square that in our minds because what comes next in verses 6 through 20 is again an extraordinary, explicit extended and vivid description of God's coming judgment on Babylon, and really by extension, because we know this principle just runs through the scriptures, this is a judgment that comes to all people and all nations who live by pride. God always opposes the the proud, whether they lived in ancient times or modern times, whether they are small or they're great, whether they are on a personal, cosmic, or national level. God's judgment comes to put pride to an end. Again, not just Old Testament stuff, all right? This is what we confess every week when we say the Apostles' Creed together. This is a pillar of the Christian faith. We believe that Christ himself, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. And this is jarring to some people. It's surprising to hear that, again, the God of love and mercy, who we've just sung praises to for his mercy and kindness, he will bring the kind of judgment described in this chapter, this awful, terrible outcome. He'll bring it on the heads of the proud. So to help us understand God's judgment, to see it rightly, you've got to look at it through this lens. Uh, God isn't arbitrary in his judgment. He's not capricious and random with it. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at God's judgment in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, and we're going to look at it from three different angles that are given here. And again, we're just trying to always keep this in our mind, this principle. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So this is point one of our outline of, of three. This is the first angle looking at God's judgment. God's judgment justly punishes all evil. What is God's judgment? What does it do? Well, it justly punishes all evil. If you look at verses 6 through 20, again, a really big chunk, hard to get a handle on. Uh, God is promising here that Babylon, this, this seemingly unstoppable empire, would soon face destruction. In history, that happened sometime around 6th century AD, or sorry, BC. Uh, it, they, were, they were done away with by the rising Persian Empire. And, and Habakkuk chapter 2 makes it very clear that this is just Persia's doing. This is God's doing. Just as God is sending Babylon to come and judge Judah's pride, so Persia will be God's tool to punish and judge Babylon's pride. And when, when that time comes, when that day comes, God will justly punish all of Babylon's evil. And, and those words are intentional. The punishment and the judgment that's coming, it's just. That is, it's, it's, it's all fair. It's all right. And it'll also be total. It'll be complete. It'll be thorough. Um, if you, if you, I try to make it clear when I was reading the text, uh, the woes that are present in this passage. There are five woes that are given by God, five woes pronounced over this proud nation Babylon. And what these five woes are doing is they're cataloging um, the manifestations of pride present in Babylon these are the reasons why God is so opposed to them, why he will judge them. If you look at verse 6, you see the first woe. Uh, woe to him, uh, you know, what sorrow is in store for him who heaps up what is not his own. God is calling out Babylon's greed here. Uh, look down to verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Babylon here is calling out, or God is calling out Babylon's stealing from others, uh, their proud dependence on their wealth for safety and for security. Look down at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Here God is condemning Babylon's violence, their injustice. They built their entire empire on the blood of others, killing the innocent, the strong, crushing the weak. Look in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink uh, to drunkenness. God condemns Babylon's demeaning treatment of people, the way they shame and violate them. And finally, in verse 19, the fifth woe. Woe to him who makes a wooden thing to worship it. God is saying, I won't tolerate your idolatry anymore. They're making of false gods, putting all other things before the one true and living God. It's led to these other problems uh, they've rejected God for their lies. And for all of Babylon's pride, all of their evil, God justly responds appropriately and fittingly with his judgment. If you look at verse 8, it gives an, an example of God's judgment, the way it's fitting and just. Look at verse 8. It says, Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. Right? This, this is a just, right, fitting judgment. You have plundered others, and you yourself now will be plundered. We see that when God judges uh, nations and people, he doesn't judge with a shotgun, but with a scalpel. He's precise. He's careful. He's measured. His judgment isn't to a, an, an excess. 
It's just and right and fair. He deals with sin exactingly, with pinpoint accuracy. And God's judgment is just uh, because it's appropriate, it's good and careful, but also it's, it's uh, just because it deals with all of Babylon's evil. God's judgment is thorough. Nothing escapes his notice. There's no hidden sin that, that Babylon gets away with that God doesn't see that he's going to miss when he finally comes to judge. Babylon will not get away with one single solitary sin. The five woes, you can think of it that way, that God has been carefully cataloging Babylon's sin. Habakkuk wonders if God notices uh, all the evil that's happening, and God responds by basically saying, I do, I, I see it all, and I'll remember everything. Uh, God says uh, that judgment uh, will deal, when, when his judgment comes, it doesn't just deal with public grotesque sins like in Babylon, you know, murdering, robbing widows, um, but, but also it comes to judge private, subtle sins, Sins that are just done in the dark that you think that nobody noticed. It comes down to the very words you speak. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 12. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. This is who God is. This is who he has always been. He opposes the proud and his judgment will justly punish all evil. Now, on the one hand, this word of judgment is very good news. It, it, it is very welcome, particularly for victims of violence. This word of coming judgment is a comfort for those who have been hurt by evil people, who have suffered, who have faced violence. They hear this word that it will be put to an end. God will see to it. This is, this is good news that as they suffer, God is not silent, he is not idle, he is not indifferent. Sin matters to God. He sees the evil that's been done to you. He cares. He's not absent, he's not indifferent to your suffering. Like a good father, like a good protector, he will deal with the harm that's been done to his children. In due time, he'll justly judge all evil. He'll take care of it. Listen, he, he will not let it slide. He's just and he's thorough. And so we need to hear this word of judgment as, as comfort on the one hand to some, but on the other hand, it's unnerving for us who know that though often we are victims, we are also often perpetrators. We are proud. We've caused harm to others. We've used others for our own benefit. Maybe not to Babylonian excess, of course, but we've caused real harm nonetheless. For, for many in this room, you know that your greed, your selfishness, your violence, your pride has caused real harm to other people. Your careless words that you've spoken, you've tried to cut up other people with them. And you need to hear this too. God opposes not just other people's pride, but your pride. God is just and thorough with other people's sin against you and against others, but he is also just and thorough with your sin against other people. God justly judges all evil in all people because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is a sober thought. You need, you need, to, you need to dwell in it for a little bit. We are all equally under God's just judgment because all of us, everyone, is proud. Woes that are spoken here in chapter 2, they could be spoken of us. Right? Like Babylon, we've turned away from God. We've worshipped ourselves and created things. 
And so for this, this first point, God's judgment justly punishes all evil. I'm just going let to you, let you hang for a few minutes with that, okay? I'm not going to bring too much comfort for you for a minute. I'm going to let you stew in that uncomfortable truth for a bit while we move on to, to the second point. And this is the second point. God's judgment silences all our questions. Not only does it justly punish all evil, God's judgment silences all our questions. We've only been two weeks in Habakkuk, but hopefully you've noticed that Habakkuk has been wondering loudly why God seems silent. He's, he's wondering that. He wonders why it seems like God is letting uh, evil go unpunished, both in Judah and in Babylon. Habakkuk knows that God's judgment will come eventually, but, but he's, he's bothered that uh, it happens way later than he'd like. Sometimes it even seems that it, it, it's not dealt with in this life at all, that it's delayed to the afterlife to final judgment. And for Habakkuk, that's actually not sufficient for him. He's bothered by this. In chapter 1, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Why do you idly look at wrong? Why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows up people more righteous than he? And in chapter 2, like I said, this is God giving his response to Habakkuk's faithful doubt. This is all of chapter 2. And, and again, he describes in the five woes, uh, his, his controlled, settled opposition to Babylon's pride. His, his judgment is coming, and when it comes, it will be thorough, it will be just, and this response that God gives to Habakkuk um, uh, is meant to have a particular effect on Habakkuk and, his, and it, all of his questions. God promises judgment, he details it to Habakkuk, he tells him, and he speaks this to us, um, but it's meant to have an effect on, on all our questions, on all the ways that we don't think that um, it's perhaps fair or right, uh, that it's delayed. I want you to look at chapter, or verse 20 of chapter 2. Look at what happens after God pronounces all of his judgments. Verse 20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. That is, he's seated in his heavenly palace. He's ruling the world as a great king. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That is, let, let everyone everywhere be, be quieted. Let, let them rest from their questioning and, and be in awe that God's justice is delivered. When God judges the proud, we will all be completely silent. God's judgment silences all our questions. And this, this is important for perhaps two groups to hear. All right? The first group, like Habakkuk, is unsatisfied that God delays his judgment like the fact that some people seem to get away with evil for a very long time or they live apparently full and peaceful lives and never seem to face consequences for their pride, it raises all kinds of questions. God, don't you see? Don't you care? I have a friend, uh, she's, she's not a Christian, but she was, she was deeply bothered when she got the news, you know, whatever it was, a decade or so ago, when Osama bin Laden was killed. She was really, really bothered by it because... She thought, for somebody who's caused such misery and pain and suffering to so many thousands of people, it seemed deeply unjust that he got to escape really quick. Uh, he, he faced a swift death. And she believed, of course, that, that after death there's nothing. And so in her mind, his death was an injustice. Like, justice, in her mind, was that he would receive a slow and, and progressive punishment. You know, he'd rot in jail. He'd have to face um, his victims' families. He'd be miserable for, for the rest of his life. But just dying, that hardly seemed fair. 
And so this first group wonders, they got a lot of questions. God, why does it seem like so many people get away with so much? Why, why do people seem um, to enjoy their lives when they're doing what's wrong? To live full lives when their victims are robbed of it? But this is what God says. After he, after he pronounces his judgment, which is often delayed, when it finally comes, it will be so complete, it will be so thorough, it will be so exacting, so perfect, that all of our questions will be silenced. We'll see the perfection of his judgment, such that we won't any longer wonder at the fairness and wisdom of his delaying it or doing it in the way that he did it. Our questions will end when God's judgment falls. Look at verse 3. Uh, the vision of the judgment in verse 3 that God gives to Habakkuk, God encourages him. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So again, this first group, this first group silenced are those currently unsatisfied with God's delaying his judgment. But the second group whose questions will be silenced when God judges the world are those who are bothered by what seems like an overly harsh or severe response to God. They think God is just going overboard with judgment. Maybe as we read through Habakkuk chapter 2, you felt a bit bothered by like the somewhat vivid, somewhat salty descriptions of God's coming judgment on Babylon. Some of the descriptions are not PG, all right? And it's not just these historical judgments like the five woes of Babylon uh, that that are a bit difficult for some people to process. Um, uh, Perhaps uniquely, Jesus, who spoke more about uh, eternal judgment than others, some of his descriptions of hell and final judgment really bother you. Uh, Everlasting opposition to the pride of people in hell is something that Jesus spoke of often. And this second group can't imagine that God could be good, that he could be just, and punish sins to the severity and extent that the Bible says he will. We ask questions. We have lots of questions. God, isn't that a bit much? Isn't that a bit barbaric? That doesn't seem fair. It seems hardly fair for for there to be an eternal punishment for, for somewhat temporal offenses, really. Are you sure? Maybe you've asked these questions. But verse 20 of our text reminds us that even these questions will one day be silenced. When one day we see God's judging, when we see him in his perfection, his exactness, his fairness, our questions will be silenced, we'll be in awe, we'll be in worship uh, for his wisdom. Uh, there's a, a figure in church history in the 4th century, 14th century named Julian of Norwich. who was a really interesting Christian writer at the time. And, and she had questions about God's judgment. It was hard for her to, to square it away like, like Habakkuk, uh, like people in the 14th century, like many of us do. She didn't understand God's coming judgment, didn't get how hell could be fair. But she trusted God. She had doubts, but she had a faithful doubt. And so, looking ahead to this coming judgment of the proud, she said this, with confidence, all shall be well. All shall be well. This is a statement of faith, right? (laughs) Whatever ends God is bringing about, whatever judgment he will one day dish out, the response of faith is, all shall be well. No one will complain because... When judgment comes, it'll come from God, who is holy and good and fair. No one will say in the face of judgment, that wasn't fair or that was too much. Our questions will be silenced. All shall be well. God's judgment, when it comes and how it comes, will silence all of our questions. 
Again, just to recap where we've been, God's judgment justly punishes all evil. God's judgment silences all our questions. And third and finally, God's judgment meets his overflowing mercy in Christ. This is an important word that you need to hear. God's judgment meets his overflowing mercy in the person of Christ. Maybe you're still feeling a bit on edge from the first point that I said, you are a proud person deserving judgment that didn't sit well to you. To be reminded that God justly punishes all evil. God sees not just the pride and violence of Babylon, but your pride, and he opposes it. That's bad news to the proud. If Babylon can't escape God's judgment, then neither do we. And so how does the good news of God's mercy, how does it come to us? How do we enjoy the forgiveness and grace that we've been singing about this morning? And this is something we need to be sure of. This doesn't change Old Testament to New Testament. God always opposes the proud. He won't ignore people's pride. He won't ignore their violence or their greed or their abuse. Ignoring pride and forgiving perpetrators is unjust. It's very cruel to victims. The idea that God could just let Babylon off, you know, just, just give them his grace, just forgive them. Like, hey, I know that you brutalize nations. You've harmed untold thousands of families. You've robbed, you've killed, you've brought shame at will, but I'm a merciful God and I'm just going to let it go. That's unjust. I'd be cruel. That, that only increases victims' pain. It, it only encourages further wickedness. The good news of Jesus is this. Listen, God's judgment meets his overflowing mercy in Christ. In Christ, God perfectly opposes pride and he gives grace to sinners. And he does this not by ignoring pride, but by bearing the judgment for our pride in himself. When Christ came, he came as the sin bearer. He came to bear God's full judgment for our evil, for our pride in himself. Jesus was plundered for us plunderers. Jesus was robbed of life for those who robbed the life of others. Jesus faced the public shame that you and I deserved. Jesus, the innocent, drank the cup of wrath to the bottom that we who were guilty deserved to drink. This is what happens at the cross. God's perfect judgment, fair that sees everything, that is thorough. It meets his overflowing mercy and love and grace. Christ bears our judgment. He bears the woes that are due to us so that he can be both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. The cross says to us, God takes sin and pride seriously. He opposes it. He'll justly judge all of it. But the cross also tells us this, that he is so filled with grace and mercy to those humbled by their pride that at the great cost of his own son, he takes on that judgment that's due us. Let's finish with this. Christ's sacrifice for us is, is profoundly humbling. When you, when you look at what the cross is, what Christ has done, it tells us that you are so sinful, you're so far gone, your pride is so deep that nothing but Christ's death could redeem us. It's also profoundly humbling because it speaks to us this word, that we're so loved, we're so enjoyed by God. He delights in us so much that Christ was glad to die in our place. He didn't do so under comp compulsion, he did so out of love. And as we believe this gospel, we, we are humbled to the core. We're humbled both by Christ's judgment-bearing and mercy to us, 
and by the extent of our own sin. And as we're humbled, as we know, we're given more and more grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so as you look at the gospel, may you be humbled, and may you receive this grace. May you who have suffered evil know for certain that God will justly punish all evil. May you know in faith that your many questions will one day be silenced as you see God's wise and perfect judgments. And may you be humbled at the foot of the cross of Christ where God's judgment and his perfect mercy finally meet. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you with many questions, with, with faithful doubt, wondering at your ways, in awe of your judgment, and weighed down by our own sins. God, we thank you for your perfect justice, that you will right every wrong, that in eternity uh, you will put an end to all the evil that touches us. God, this is, this is good news, but as we've said, it's also fearful. So now would you build our faith? Would you help us to look at this good news of Jesus who's come for our sin and for our salvation? Would we trust in him completely, knowing that our sin is very great, but that our Savior is greater? Lord, help us now to look at him in trust and in hope. And we pray that all in Christ's name. Amen.